Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. It is November the 17th, 2021, and we have much to celebrate. For the first time, the show is back on the road in downtown San Francisco at the Hotel Nico, uh, just underneath the Tenderloin. I had to drive my electric vehicle down, put it in a garage, fought my way through the homeless people and all the police. It was almost like being in a Neil Stevenson book. And as it happens, I am talking to the very master of dystopian science fiction, Neil Stevenson himself, who was also brave downtown San Francisco, and he has a new book out, Termination, Shock Neil. Welcome. It's good to be here. Have you ever felt like you've wandered into one of your own books? <laughs> well, uh, life imitates art, right? So um, uh, there are moments when I see things that, uh, that look like uh, they came out of cyberpunk novels, uh, but um, you know, uh, in, in general, uh, life uh, outpaces our imagination. And so uh, it's more common, I think, for, for writers to, uh, to feel like we're being left behind, like we're not keeping up. Do you ever feel you've been left behind now? Yes, absolutely. Uh, when I was working on uh, Fall for Dodge and Hell, I, I started that prior to the election of uh, of Donald Trump and uh, wrote a whole section about political polarization and and people uh, losing track of reality um, and thought I was being quite prescient. I really thought I was years and years ahead of the, the game. Uh, and then uh, on election night, I found I was years behind. What about on this global warming front? Your new book, uh, Neil, this 600-page, 5-600-page novel, Termination Shock, is about global warming, about the environmental crisis. We're speaking just after COP26. Greta Thunberg has already complained about the blah, blah, blah of the political establishment and the corporate, the corporate establishment in Glasgow. Are you ahead of the curve on termination shock. What are you saying in this book about global warming which hasn't been said before? Well, the, uh, uh, the particular scenario that is, that is shown in the book is one where uh, an individual, a billionaire, decides to take unilateral action by performing an act of what we call solar geoengineering, which means injecting sulfur into the stratosphere to bounce back a small fraction of the sun's heat and slow the progress of global temperature rise. Um, as he knows, and as everyone who studies this knows, this does absolutely nothing to deal with the underlying problem of global warming, which is that there's way too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, so it's strictly a stopgap measure that could cool down the global climate overall um, as long as he keeps doing it. Um, and it, as such, maybe provide some time uh, to institute emission reductions and, more importantly, carbon capture. Um, so that's the premise of this book, and it's largely about how people react to his having taken those uh, unprecedented actions. 
Neil, uh, earlier this week, uh, we did a show about David Graeber's new book, Dawn of Everything. Graeber, of course, died before the book came out. Um, but in the book, he talks about kairos, this Greek notion of it being, in Graeber's language at least, the appropriate moment for um, his anarchist theory of the post-state world and, and, and many of the other uh, political ideals of Graeber. When it comes to Kairos and the environmental, our, our environmental moment in November 2021, where are we? We're the beginning of the end, the end of the beginning? First chapter, second chapter, baseball I, innings? I, I think we're, uh, we're at the end of, of Act One. and um, How many acts, Neil? Uh, yeah, three, maybe five. Um, so uh, the time has already passed us by when we should have stopped putting CO2 into the atmosphere. And we're, we've, we're way ahead of where we ought to be in terms of um, CO2 level right now. So um, even if we could magically stop adding CO2 to the atmosphere today, which we can't, um, we would still have a very serious problem on our hands. Um, when I was born, the CO2, the parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere was about 320. Today it's 411. So it's gone up by that much um, just in the time I've been alive. And it's still continuing to climb at a, a very rapid pace. So, um, uh, so that's where we are today. And, you know, uh, it's going to be an exciting few decades ahead of us. Exciting? Is that the right word? Yeah. Yeah, exciting I mean, in a like a like a ride on um, uh, in a dangerous vehicle. Uh, exciting as if uh, we're on our way to fixing this problem. I think the first part of it is going to be more like being in a dangerous vehicle, like the beginning of your uh, snow crash book. Yeah, the pizza delivery guy. That's right. It's where. And you're going to end up in a swimming pool. Heading toward a heading toward a cliff and um, or a swimming pool. Uh, take your pick. <laughs> The um, where we end up uh, depends on what actions we take, and I think the only way for us to get out of it whole is to institute carbon capture on a massive scale. How angry are you? I was reading the book. It's hard to tell with a girl like you who seems fairly reticent. Perhaps you, you get angry privately. Is there anger in that book? Uh, specifically about climate? Yes. Um, I don't think anger is is the the correct uh, way to come at this because um, it uh, I, I, people were beginning to understand the greenhouse effect quite a while ago, uh, sort of around 1900. Um, but I the um, responsibility for putting that CO2 into the air is spread out across a couple of hundred years and uh, across um, a, a vast number of different people uh, and companies who've, who've lived uh, on this earth during that time. And so um, this is not something where there's a Hitler or a Stalin that you can point to and say, this is all his fault, uh, let's be mad at him. Um, certainly some people are more responsible than others. You know, the, I think the oil companies have a lot to answer for because I think they, they, they knew what was happening and they kept doing it anyway. But they couldn't keep doing it if we as consumers didn't continue to consume energy and put gasoline into our cars and, and plug appliances into walls. Um, 
So anger isn't going to get us anywhere in this particular case. Uh, trying to um, point fingers, uh, identify the guilty party, and, and punish them or uh, get some kind of uh, reparations out of them is not going to solve the problem. Are you making money? But are you not sure you're doing all the right things with it? Are you investing it correctly? Are you saving it? Or are you somehow losing it? Is it falling between the cracks in your life? Does money stuff stress you out? It certainly stresses me out. And I'm sure it stresses out all of my listeners. Are you just winging it with your finances? I am. You probably are. And most of us do. Because that is the nature of most of our financial self-management. If any of those things are true, you've got to try Facebook. If any of those things are true, you've got to try Playbook, the app for growing your own money. For the average user, Playbook helps boost their net worth by over $1.3 million. Yes, that's $1.3 million. There's no paperwork with Playbook. You just connect your own bank accounts and Playbook builds a plan to maximize your own tax advantages. Playbook tells you which tax advantaged accounts you need, how much money to put into each of them, and even automates these processes for you. Money stuff can be stressful, we all know that, but Playbook makes it easy to review your own financial plan, track your own financial progress, and make changes at any time you want. Plus, it's all automated. Once your financial plan is in motion, Playbook is on it. They keep an eye on all your finances and adjust your plan accordingly. It's rare, very, very rare, that a finance app thinks about your finances as a whole. That's your, all your finances, your taxes, your savings, and all your life financial goals. Whether it's a wedding, a family trip, donating to charity, or the FIRE lifestyle, Playbook helps you get there faster. So what's my favorite Playbook feature? I really like the way in which the app shows me all my accounts, all my goals, and all my progress in a single place, instead of having to log on to 10 different confusing finance apps. Uh, Automatica contribution to my Roth IRA and travel fund uh, every month. The Playbook Impact. It tracks and predicts how old I'll be when I can stop working forever. So get on the road to financial freedom. Go to helloplaybook.com forward slash keen on. And with my unique link, helloplaybook.com forward slash keen on, you get a free playbook impact. It predicts how much your net worth could grow if you start today. Helloplaybook.com forward slash keen on.
keen on playbook to financial freedom and beyond. What about the generational element? The Greta Thunberg and many of her followers are angry. They're very angry in their demonstrations in Glasgow. They're also angry about capitalism. Is it any coincidence that your book, which in, in, in classic Stevens, uh, Stevenson manner is clearly ironic in some levels and political parody, it has a, a billionaire at the heart of it replacing the state, trying to fix this on his own. Is there a critique of capitalism there? Brian, or at least early 21st century capitalism? Well, uh, the... Um, I said Brian, I meant Neil, sorry. Oh, that's all right, it's all right, Ted. Um, the, uh, uh, I, um, uh, I, I think the desire to uh, burn fossil fuels and, and build heavy industry, have transportation systems, have electricity is not a purely capitalistic drive, um, so... Um, I mean, most countries uh, have been capitalists since the, the fall of the Soviet Union, but um, uh, but uh, when they were, were running the Soviet Union, they were pretty enthusiastic uh, 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 users and producers of, of fossil fuel, fossil fuels and of energy as well. Um, so you can't peg that to capitalism. It's just people wanting to stay warm. It's people wanting electricity. It's people wanting to have cars. Um, the the particular scenario of having a billionaire who steps in and takes unilateral action is a reflection of a, a interesting phenomenon that has arisen within the last few decades, which is that um, we now, for better or worse, we now look to billionaires uh, as as people who are going to solve problems for us that uh, in past generations would have been solved by governmental organizations, by the military, by big uh, sort of old line uh, companies. Um, for whatever reason, uh, that's not, uh, those aren't where we look now for solutions to problems. And instead, um, uh, we've kind of started using billionaires as a crutch. Well, they're using us as a crutch as well. I mean, yeah. you work with Jeff Bezos on Blue Origin. Uh, so you know billionaires as well as anyone. Is this a healthy situation where you have a guy like Bezos or Musk able to actually orchestrate uh, space travel more efficiently, more effectively than state organizations like NASA? Um, it's a great question. Uh, there seem to be advantages either way overall though none of this could happen without extremely wide variations in income and wealth. You know, uh, I don't know if they're the widest they've ever been in history right now, uh, or if there's historical precedence for it. Um, but it's uh, certainly the case that, um, that very rich people today are a lot richer than the very rich people of, say, 50 years ago. Uh, the, the gap has widened. Um, and. You know, that's a consequence of how markets work and how, in particular, technology markets have, have worked uh, in the last couple generations. Um, and um, so it just is. It, it's this thing that has happened. Um, and um, uh, I, I suspect it's an anomaly that will correct itself over time. Uh, but as long as it exists... Well, it's not going to self-correct, is it, uh, is it Neil? Um, 
We know we've done many shows on this about the impact of what you call termination shock or the environmental crisis on the poor is much worse than on the wealthy. You have oh, you know, sure. billionaires like Peter Thiel able to buy out bits of land in New Zealand and essentially escape from the crisis. Mm -hmm. For sure, for sure. But I'm, I'm talking specifically about how people like him and the other people you mentioned were able to accumulate so much wealth so yeah. fast. And that is, I think, sort of a, a, a weird historical anomaly uh, that arose from the move, the pivot of a lot, a lot of our economy into software. And the fact that uh, if your business is software, you can, uh, produce, uh, you can produce your product essentially for free once you've once you've written the code or generated the necessary bits. You were the chief futurist at Magic Leap, I think up until about a year ago or a couple of years ago. Year and a half. Um, do you think futurist or futurism is a euphemism for inequality? <laughs> uh, I and I don't mean that personally for you because we all need, including myself, to make a living, but um, hasn't futurism been appropriated by this new meta-rich class? Uh, not that I've noticed. Um, the, uh, um, I mean, futurism is uh, it's a very general and vague term that is, really doesn't mean anything more than trying to think about what might happen in the future. When I took that role, when I took that job title, and magically, the first thing I told them was that I didn't want to be a, uh, a guru sitting there gazing at my navel and you know, thinking profound thoughts about the future. I wanted to actually build things. Um, and so my way of, uh, of being a futurist was to, um, to run a small team of uh, content creators in Seattle. Uh, and for several years, we worked on building uh, new kinds of content that would run on an augmented reality device. We came up with some stuff that uh, that I'm proud of um, until uh, circumstances uh, caused that group to be disbanded. Are you going to sue Mark Zuckerberg for stealing your term metaverse for his new company? Um, somehow I think that would end badly for me. <laughs> uh, the, um, yeah. Why? Um, you wouldn't win? Yeah, well, aren't you aren't you complimented by the fact though that he's taken your word that you invented in um, in, uh, in in Snow Crash and tried to sort of take over the entire world, or seems to be? I guess it's a a, a weird uh, little distinction, uh, you know, that I can add to my my CV at, <laughs> at some point. Um, I mean, the you know the, the sort of broader version of that question is that uh, since the book came out, um, a, a number of people working at a number of companies have kind of used it as uh, a vision to work toward um, and um, have tried to implement their ideas of what the metaverse might be in different ways. And um, um, and those are as, as varied as the, the people who, uh, who work on them. Yeah, everyone's got a different take on what the metaverse might mean and what's interesting to them uh, about the metaverse. So that's been going on since the book came out. Um, we've seen things like Google Earth. Uh, we've, you know, we've seen the concept of avatars come into very broad circulation. And um, the, uh, 
Uh, you know, the latest round of activity, I think, has just been triggered by um, um, changes in, uh, in the technology that kind of bring uh, that sort of uh, application within, uh, within reach within the next few years. Um, Neil, as we say in Silicon Valley, once you're lucky, twice, you're more than lucky. You're very talented, and you've done it more than twice in terms of predicted the future or been to the future, arrived at the future before anyone else. You did it with the metaverse, and then you did it in uh, and then I'm gonna, Cryptonomicon. Cryptonomicon, in which you were one of the first people to imagine peer-to-peer uh, -peer currencies. Were you an early investor in Bitcoin? No. I, uh, I got invited to a Bitcoin conference in, I think it was 2014, and one of the people there was horrified that I had not already purchased lots of Bitcoin. And so, uh, so he, he was so, uh, he was so uh, scandalized by that that he, he insisted I download you know, the, a blockchain wallet app on the spot, which I did, and then he bestowed on me a Bitcoin, um, which at the time was about $300. Um, so, so this guy essentially gave me $300. And it, since then, I, I check on its value about every year. Um, I, I, I can't be bothered to follow the rapid ups and downs. Where do you live, Neil? Seattle. Do you think that not living in Silicon Valley helps you figure out the future better? I mean, Seattle, I guess, is slightly futuristic, but it's not like Silicon Valley. Do you think the further away you are from San Francisco and San Jose and then the valley, the more able you are to imagine the future? Well, Seattle does have a significant tech sector, you know, there's um, yeah, I've heard. Microsoft, some couple of small companies, Amazon, right? Amazon, you know, Nintendo and, and yeah. many others. So, but so it's not like here. It's it? not like being in the back of beyond. I will give you that. I will give you, you know, driving in from the um, airport, I saw a billboard um, that was, it was a pun. It was making a play on words uh, about Hadoop, which is a fairly arcane piece of network architecture. Uh, we don't see, uh, we don't see that where I live. Um, but um, I would say it's a good in-between place to be. There's certainly enough tech in Seattle that I can, you know, interact with all the tech geeks I might ever want to, um, but I'm not really in the thick of it. Neil, as I said earlier, you I think you're implicitly, maybe not explicitly, a political person. You, your books touch on politics, and sometimes the absence of politics in your book is political. Um, <laughs> I guess that's coming from me, who's, who, who reads everything politically. I know you're a big admirer of some recent books by Anne Applebaum, Jonathan Rauch. Both of them have actually been on the show recently. Oh, really? How worried are you politically about the future of democracy in America? Uh, I'm not sure if there is a functioning democracy in America. Even today, in, even, in even November today, 2021? Yeah. What's happened to it? Where's it gone? The, um, uh, it's been, um, it's been, well, Anne does a great job of, of telling the story in her book, The Twilight of Democracy. Um, but um, there are techniques that, that bad actors have learned and, and have developed uh, over the years to, to, uh, to destroy 
democratic institutions uh, by using misinformation and by kind of trading on certain uh, unsavory aspects of human nature. Um, and, um, and they've been doing that. Um, and they've been using uh, social media and other uh, uh, vectors to, to sort of uh, stage a kind of quiet invasion um, and, um, and, and, and accelerate the deterioration of, um, of the institutions that are needed to keep democracy alive. So when the Constitution of the United States was written, it was, uh, it was written on the assumption that, uh, that all the players going forward would be, would be good faith uh, supporters of, of democratic institutions. Um, and, and none of it works when you get people in, uh, in positions of authority who essentially have no respect for the Constitution and are willing to just baldly um, tear down uh, in institutions and lie and use uh, various kinds of threats um, and coercion uh, to, to, to get their way. So that has been going on uh, at, a, at a terrific pace for, um, uh, for, for quite a few years now. Um, I first noticed it or became aware of it when with the swift voting of John Kerry, um, where uh, where they they came after a Silver Star uh, winning that was uh, the second Bush election. Yeah, yeah, um, Silver Star winning war hero uh, with just blatant lies um, uh, at a time when his opponent was was a draft dodger. Uh, and, and of course, I thought, well, this is ridiculous, and there's no way that they can uh, get away with this. Uh, but, but they, they did, of course, they and did. Kerry lost. They did, yeah, Kerry lost. Um, and so, uh, uh, and at the time, I, I, I thought that was too bizarre uh, to, uh, to, to happen again. But of course, it's, it's really sort of their standard operating procedure nowadays. Well, Neil, you've been very generous with your time. I know you need to dash out into the Stevensonian nature of San Francisco, yeah. but a couple of very quick questions before you go. Firstly, in all seriousness, this is a book about the environmental crisis, perhaps an apocalypse, termination shock. Are there a couple of things that you think ordinary people can do, viewers, listeners to this, can do to start addressing this question, that they don't have to be billionaires, they don't have to be rocket scientists? Yeah. Um, well. Uh, it's a tough one because uh, I, I think we've all at some level internalized a certain narrative about environmental things particularly which is sort of it's a sort of it's, it's based in I think Christianity and it has to do with you know we're all sinners we need to uh, to, to repent for our sins and then we need to uh, to atone by um, uh, but we, we need to do penance, uh, and then we will have redeemed ourselves. So we're all guilty, essentially. We all feel guilty. Yeah, yeah. We need to redeem ourselves somehow, and then that'll solve the the, the problem. It'll expiate our guilt, um, and um, that doesn't work very well with climate change. So, uh, yeah, I think it's actually counterproductive because people tend to to, to think, well, okay, if the problem is you know too much fossil fuels, too much carbon dioxide in the air, then I'm going to, um, 
you know, buy a smaller car, or I'm going to ride my bicycle to work, or I'm going to turn my thermostat down uh, so that I'm not contributing to uh, CO2 emissions as much as I was. Um, well, that uh, it's not bad to do that, um, and it, it might make you feel good, but it's not actually going to make a substantial difference in the, the problem that we're facing. Um, so, um, uh, and I, I think it kind of uh, can uh, anesthetize us in a certain way and make us think that, okay, I've done my bit, um, and so, uh, so uh, I'm, I've redeemed myself and I don't have to do anything more. So um, I think people need to stop doing that and instead uh, trying to use the, the levers of political and economic power that are available to them to, um, to try to uh, push for big structural uh, changes, the most important which of which by far is carbon capture. Yeah, we've done a number of shows on carbon capture, uh, and, and that I think ultimately is what termination shock is all about. Finally, Neil, congratulations on this, this brilliant new book, Termination Shock. As always with your novels, I'm sure it's going to be a bestseller and a huge critical success. Thank you. I In addition so. to your own books, what are you reading at the moment that's getting you going? Well, I uh, just put out a bibliography uh, last week on uh, Bookseller, uh, which is um, uh, it's, it's about... Um, uh, you, you mentioned Jonathan Rauch and Ann Applebaum, yeah. um, so they're they're on the list, and it's it's kind of about the issue we were talking about earlier of people not being able to agree agree on what reality is. Um, but I uh, I read a lot of history, um, and um, that's always true of um, science fiction. Great science fiction writers. Uh, Bruce Sterling's a friend of mine, and I'm always amazed with how much history he knows. The best science fiction people are deeply uh, embroiled in, in history, aren't they? And have always been, I think. Um, and so, um, and in fact, in, in Bruce's uh, anthology that he published last year, he's got what reads like the opening chapters of a historical novel that I would very much much like to read the, the rest of. Yeah. So, so yeah, reading history is a common uh, failing of, uh, of science fiction writers, has been for, for a long time. Maybe the best historian should read science fiction. Anyway, Neil Stevenson, real honor. Your new book, Termination Shock, is out now. It's a novel. It's a must-read. Good luck with reality, and uh, we'll look forward to having you on the show again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keen On show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have a, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keen On show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me 
personally. Uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows, you might email me at a.keen at me.com. Or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community, and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not-too-distant future.